Well, good morning and uh, welcome. My name is John, one of the pastors here. Good to see you all uh, and glad to be worshiping with you uh, on this Sunday morning and uh, a little bit of a cooler morning too. Uh, I encourage you to open up to our scripture passage. Uh, we are looking in Colossians 3, uh, verses 1 to 11. So Colossians 3, 1 to 11. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today. Uh, Lord, our hearts are an open book before you this morning. You know what is going on in each one of us today. You know the things that happened this last week, and you know what is on our minds and on our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would take your word and press it in into each one of us to mold us and convict us, to shape us, build us, and renew us so that each one of us would look more and more like that perfect image of you found in Christ Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Well, if you've ever gone camping, or even more so backpacking, uh, you'll know there's a bunch of things that are great for backpacking, but not so great when you get back home. There are so many meals that I've eaten out backpacking, and I think, this meal is amazing. And then sometimes I'll make it again back home, and it's just a few uh, steps above dry cardboard. And I was like, what was I thinking? Well, I'd forgotten that it doesn't matter what meal it is. Any meal tastes awesome when you're backpacking. Uh, after college, I had kind of this break uh, for a little bit, and I backpacked. Uh, the Colorado Trail, which is this iconic trail that takes you through uh, many of the most beautiful parts of that state where I grew up. And it's uh, 486 miles, which makes for a long backpacking trip. And when you're out that long, you have to make several lifestyle adjustments. So about five days in, I decided, all right, maybe I'll take a bath now. And so I jumped into a mountain creek and shivered the rest of the day because at 10,000 feet, nothing ever gets that warm. I decided, you know what? Being covered in dirt is not that bad. I also had to change up how I did laundry. Uh, I carried two shirts, two shorts, and I think four pairs of socks. And I'd wear the same shirt and shorts for a few days straight. Uh, but for many reasons, it's nice to have a fresh pair of socks uh, to put on your feet each day. And so I'd been washing everything in the creek 
which worked all right, but you never felt like you were actually wearing clean clothes. And so one day I had an idea. You know, what if I put warm water in my Nalgene water bottle, add a drop of soap, and shake it and shake it? It's like a portable washing machine. And then I finished up with a rinse cycle in the creek. And I was so impressed. I would challenge any washing machine out there to get my socks and undies as clean as my Nalgene method did. And then after doing some laundry, I'd rinse out the water bottle. And one of the treats of every afternoon, especially as it got hot, was I would add some lemonade mix to that water bottle, uh, some, uh, some water, and enjoy some nice, cool lemonade from my washing machine. Like, this is what bothered my mom most about on the trip. I still have that water bottle, even. Now, imagine, though, if I never stopped washing my socks in my water bottle. Right? You come and visit me at the church, and you're there a few minutes early, and I say, oh yeah, come on in, I'm just you know, finishing up my laundry for the day, and there I am, shaking it out, and rinse out the water bottle, and say, hey, would you like some lemonade, too, while I'm at it? And those things might work great while backpacking, but I'm not backpacking anymore. Right? There are other, better, more sanitary ways to clean your clothes. And this is the message that Paul has for us today. He's looking at the Colossians, and he's saying, you guys aren't living in the wilderness anymore. You have a new home, and your home is in heaven, and you need to start living that way. And so that's what I want us to remember this morning. Your new home is in heaven, so start living like it. Your new home is in heaven, so start living like it. We're going to look at this just two ways. First, that new home, and then second, a new culture. So new home. One of the major themes in the book of Colossians, which you've seen so far, is that for the Christian, the realities of heaven have broken into their life right now. If you remember, why is Paul writing this letter to the Colossians? Well, we see why this message is all the more important. Remember, there were teachers going around to many of these new churches, and they were saying, hey, welcome to the family as new Christians. But you know what? If you want to be grandpa's favorite, well, there's a couple extra things you need to do. And so why does Paul keep re, uh, reiterating this theme about, no, when you believe in Christ, you have everything you need? That the moment you had childlike faith, you were connected to the very life of God. And that means that the realities of heaven have started breaking into your life at that moment of faith. And if that has happened to you, that God is actually living inside of you, do you think something like getting rid of bacon is really going to make that much of a substantial difference with how God sees you? It's like the billionaire who drives 30 minutes out of his way to save five cents a gallon on gasoline. And Paul is saying, you as Christians have riches that pale in comparison to, or that the billionaire's riches pale in comparison to what you have in Christ. So are you living that way? Look at verse 1. You have been raised with Christ. And where is Christ now? It goes on to tell us Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then verse 3. For you died and your life is now where? Hidden with Christ in God. Ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin so many thousands of years ago, the whole world, that opened up a portal for the rest of the world to be corrupted by sin. 
And that has led in this world from everything, from all the weeds that you're pulling in your yard right now, to addiction and to oppression, to violence, to suffering, to all kinds of mental illnesses, and everything else that falls short of perfection in our world. And that is the world that we're born into. That is the world that we live in. But when Christ was raised from the dead, it was like God began a second work of creation. And Christ got the first new creation body, the first work of God making a new heavenly world, a world that is free from weeds and addiction, and oppression, and violence, and suffering, and mental illness. It is a world where all our tears will be wiped away, never to return again. And this is called the spiritual world, or the heavenly world. But just because it uses that language, we shouldn't just think of, you know, angels floating around on clouds up in the sky. Because Christ's heavenly body was a physical body that he received in the resurrection. He ate, he drank, but that means that the heavenly reality is ultimately a physical reality. But we are living in kind of this age where, on one hand, there is this world full of sin, but on the other hand, God has begun his work of building a new creation. And that new creation world is primarily spiritual at the moment, whereas it will be physical when Christ returns. And it is spiritual in that it is taking hold, it is taking hold of your heart, and it is taking hold of people's hearts throughout the city and around the world as more and more people put their faith in Christ. And what that means then is that heaven, the realities of heaven, start in the life of the Christian, because it has started in the life of Christ, and we are connected to Christ. And that means that churches, on one hand, are outposts of heaven. This is like a a gathering of the heavenly reality. This is, in one sense, as close to heaven as you will get on earth when Christians gather together. These are churches, are heavenly embassies, where we gather together each week to show a preview of what God's kingdom looks like. And then our churches and our homes and our individual lives must be reflective of that heavenly beauty which is becoming more and more manifest as God's kingdom grows. So with that understanding and background of just these first couple verses, here are three ways in which that makes a difference in your life today. First, it means it has changed where your home is. Your home is not the address you get your mail sent to. Your home is not the city in which you grew up. Your home is not the country that you came from. When you become a Christian, your home shifts to heaven. And that starts the moment that you have faith. The moment you have faith, your home of record changes to a heavenly address. And now remember, Paul is speaking to the Colossians who are in this small town who are struggling with day-to-day life. They are like you and I. When things are hard, they're tempted to give up. They keep asking God, how long, O Lord, are we going to suffer in these ways? And Paul reminds them, though your feet may be here on earth, your heart is securely rooted in heaven. 
Do not forget that your life is hidden with God right now. The hold of heaven is much stronger than the hold of the things of this earth. You've been wandering in the wilderness for a while, but God's found you now. You're in his arms. And though you're still covered in dirt and grime and the aches and pains of this world, that stuff is like an old pair of clothing that will be taken off and you will be given a new set of garments in your new life. This means that the power of sin that infects every corner of this world, when you become a Christian, it is like that work of new creation also begins in you. And so no longer being born in Adam and in inheriting all of his you know, sinful tendencies, you are born again in Christ and, be, and have inherited everything that is in Christ. And that means you are growing up into a new person. And what controls your life is no longer your past or your addictions or your failures or your continued sins, but you are controlled more and more by Christ. Romans 6 helps explain this, starting in verse 6. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Though sin so often feels like its talons are so deep in your heart, the anchor, the hold of Christ goes deeper than any deepness of sin. And in God's will and in his timing, he will slowly and surgically remove those talons of sin from your heart so that you will be free and whole and holy. So then the second thing I want you to see is there's a new boss in town. Paul says in verse 1, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Many see this as an allusion to Psalm 110, a psalm which is a prophecy of this coming Messiah who will take this exalted position at God's right hand and will be given dominion over the rulers of the world. And Paul is saying, guess what? That Messiah that will rule over every ruler whose kingdom will never end, that Messiah has come and he is ruling now in the person of Christ. And what that means for us and for the world is there is a king, there is a president who has no term limits, whose rule is not threatened by the latest polls or voting results, but his kingdom is forever. There is a king who isn't threatened by tyrants with conventional weapons or cyber weapons or even nuclear weapons. But as Psalm 46 reminds us, this king causes wars to end throughout the earth. He breaks the bow, he snaps the spear, and he burns the shields with fire. Today, people sometimes talk about, you know, well, we want to be on the right side of history. The hard thing is that actually we only know, you know, hindsight is only 2020. And humanity is really bad at knowing what the right side of history is until decades or sometimes centuries later. We are so bad at understanding these things. But Christians, we have this assurance that though we are really bad at understanding what is happening now, we can know how it ends. 
we know who is on the throne, and we know that Jesus is on the right side of history. Jesus is king, and nothing will ever change that. And he will care for his people, and nothing will ever threaten that. And though sometimes, you know, wires get mixed up all over in our culture and in the world, and so what is wrong looks right, and what is long, wrong might look right, we know how it ends. And we know the one who will come to judge the living and the dead and set all things right forever. And so are you living that way? It, are you living like you know how it all ends and there is nothing to fear? It is perfectly good for Christians to mourn with those who mourn as we see how deep the pain of sin runs and how wide its path of destruction is in every corner of our world. But we should never let discouragement or fear have the last word in our life. We can never talk as if we are defeated. We can never fret as if our best days are behind us. If you are a Christian, no matter how bad it gets, you know the best is yet to come. If you are a Christian, no matter how good your life may be, it is only a shadow of the best that is yet to come. Jesus is seated on his throne. Now, it's kind of like when there's Jesus on his throne and you're standing here and there's a deep ravine between you two. And you might not know how deep that ravine goes. You might not know how hard it is to get across there and how many bushes you're going to have to get through and how scraped up you're going to get as you try to cross that ravine. But here is what you do know. God will guarantee that you will make it there. And though it might be hard, though it might be tough, your end is not in the bottom of the ravine, but exalted on the Mount of Zion with Christ. And there is nothing that can keep you from that future. Death never has the last word. You will not spend your whole life wandering in the wilderness. You will not spend your whole life with one bruise after another. God is leading you home into a world where there is no more tears or crying or suffering or pain, for all those things have been wiped away forever. And the third implication this ties into what we just said, verse 3. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You might see where you're going, and it might be so hard between here and there, but your life right now, no matter how hard it gets, is hidden with Christ in God. On my second deployment to Iraq, we had these new vehicles at the time called MRAPs, which were these vehicles that were basically designed to withstand bomb blasts. And, you know, you could run over a IED and, you know, the thing would still survive. You might lose the wheels, but, you know, the inside would be fine. It was way better than the Humvees that we rolled around in on my first deployment, which would rip like aluminum foil from a bomb blast. And at that point, when we got there, I don't think there was anyone who had been killed or even seriously injured while riding in an MRAP. And it gave this incredible sense of confidence as we drove around the Iraqi streets, not knowing what might happen. But we knew, I knew, that my life was hidden behind inches of ballistic steel. Do you have the confidence that your life is hidden behind the one who can bend ballistic steel like Plato? 
no matter what you see coming at you, as you look through those inches of bulletproof glass, you have the confidence and the peace in knowing this cannot hurt me, for my life is hidden with Christ in God. I mean, what if Christians actually lived with that confidence and joy? That though we wander through a war zone, though there are things that want to kill us and harm us, this cannot hurt me, for my life is hidden with Christ in God. You can do whatever you want to. You can do all kinds of things in this world to try to make yourself feel safe and secure. But in the end, it will fall short. You can build a bunker. You can do things. You can do whatever you want, but it can never approach to the safety and the security that is found when you trust in Christ. For your life is hidden behind the impenetrable walls of God himself. And what if that changed the outlook of how you live this life? What if that changed your outlook with how you approached fear and the things you worry about? What if we weren't addicted to the news about every horrible thing that is happening today? What if we didn't worry so much about what might happen tomorrow? And what if we lived as those who said, you know what, you may take my body, but you may never take my life, for it is hidden with Christ in God. And we'd say, but Christians can get killed. Christians can suffer. You know, it still hurts to get hit, to lose a limb, whatever it might be. Yes, it does. It can hurt so badly. The reality of Christ's resurrection does not minimize the, t- the pain and suffering and hurt that can be inflicted on your physical life. But it sets that pain and suffering into perspective. That this suffering and this pain that I may endure, it is only like rocket fuel that propels me faster into my eternal home, the house of God. That that is where I will spend eternity. So this life, in comparison, is but a scratch. Jesus has taken what we naturally most fear, our end, our demise, our pain, our suffering. He took that on the cross, took it down into the tomb, then blew the back door out of the tomb, set a doormat there, and said, welcome home. And this leads then to our second point, a new culture. If your life is hidden with Christ in God, that means every aspect of your life will change. It is a whole life reorientation. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to become a Christian and then continue to live the rest of your life like nothing else has changed. Your home has changed, right? You go to a new home. You go to a new country. That upends your entire life. And becoming a Christian should upend your entire life. If we are living with the first fruits of heaven, a world not just without sin, but without even the shadow of sin, it means that world will be drastically different from the world here. It will have a different culture. And what defines that new culture is not the things that necessarily define cultures here and create division and hostility and racism and all these other things. It's not a culture based on dietary practices or what holidays you celebrate, but it is a culture based on a vision of a good life, certain virtues and ethics. And that's what we have in verse 5. Now, my original plan was to preach through all these things listed here, 
in all in one sermon, which I quickly realized was impossible, and yet there was too much stuff that I wanted to cover. I didn't want to skip over stuff. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to preach a separate sermon where we dive more deeply into verses 5 through 9. Now, what's going to be a little bit different is Sean's preaching next week, and I'd already told him a while back that he would preach verses 12 through 14. So we'll look at that next week, and then we'll jump back to verses 5 through 9. But I think it'll work out fine, because as you look here, these passages are tied together. 5 through 9 is a list of kind of like all the old, stinking, backpacking clothes that you've been wearing for a month straight that God is now saying, here's all the stuff you need to take off. And verses 12 to 14 is like this wardrobe of new, beautiful clothes that he's saying, and now put this on. And so we're going to look at those two things back to back. And what I want to do with the rest of our time is set the stage for that wardrobe change that we're going to look at by looking at the second half of verses 9 through 11. Now, if you've been backpacking, you realize you quickly lose touch with how bad you stink because you just get used to it, right? And it is perfectly fine to wear the same clothes several days in a row and rinse them out in a stream, hang them on a line in the sun for a few hours and call it good. They might even smell clean to you. But when you get back, you realize how filthy you actually are. And that's what Paul is getting at here. It is not okay for the Christian whose life is hidden in God to continue to live like they're out in the wilderness. It's not okay for the people of Christ to bear the fragrance of Christ to every day put on those old stinking clothes that are dirty and smell. Paul is repeatedly saying, Christian, don't you realize that your home is in heaven? So look like it, smell like it, live like it. And he's not saying you're headed to heaven, so kind of, you know, get ready for that. No, it's more than that. Heaven has actually broken into your life through the resurrected Christ, so start showing that reality of your life. Open the windows of your heart to let the rays of God's beauty shine into this dark world. Don't keep putting these old grimy clothes over the radiance of Christ that is in you. Now, I love this idea, but here's The difficult part with all of this, and as you look through this list, and every one of you, you see areas that you struggle with. And this is where I am. This is where probably you are. Your experience of wrestling with the sin in your life feels so distant from what Paul describes as the reality of who you are in Christ. Sometimes sin has such a hold in our lives that it feels like, you know what, today I feel like I am alive to sin and dead to Christ. Sometimes it feels as if that hope of heaven is so dim as death feels like it's wrapping its cold fingers around your life. And sometimes you even love those old grimy clothes. And so you might just put them back in the corner, but you don't want to actually get rid of them. I would encourage every one of you to read Augustine's confession at some point in your life. You know, it was written some 1,600 years ago, so some parts are a little hard to read, but if you work through it, I guarantee it will be rewarding, because most of the book is about Augustine, this young man growing up in northern Africa, and his struggle of what it means to become a Christian, and it's a decades-long struggle as he wrestles with that, and part of what makes it so long is through it, he's wrestling with his own addictions to sin, and in particular, his own addiction to lust. 
He was the one who wrote, you probably heard this uh, quote before, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. That was the story of his life. He goes on to say, for I was afraid that you, God, would hear me too soon and too soon heal me from the disease of lust, which I wanted satisfied rather than extinguished. Now, perhaps it's lust for you. Perhaps it's greed or anger or lying. Pick your poison off the list of verses 6 to 9. Whatever those besetting sins are, I will almost guarantee that there is an aspect of Augustine's words that ring true with you. That you know this thing is bad for you. There's days when you really want it to get rid of it. But deep down, there's a part of you that would rather have that desire satisfied than put to death. There's part of you that thinks, but, but this feels so good. And there's moments when I turn to it that it helps me feel better about whatever's going on more than God does. And the reason why we believe that is because we don't believe God is our ultimate good. We don't believe that heaven and Christ could actually satisfy your deepest desires. And so what so many of us do in the Christian life is, you know, there's areas where we know we need help, we, we want something better, and so we, we welcome Christ in. Yeah, Christ fix these areas of my life, but then every one of us holds on to certain sins because they still feel good. And we try to figure out a way to have Christ and to have that satisfaction of those sinful desires. And the longer you become a Christian, the longer you're a Christian, the, the, the sad thing is the easier it is to kind of think you've reconciled those two things. You might struggle with greed, but then you decide, oh no, I'm not greedy, I just want more money to have more to give away for God. But actually it's greed that is your motivation. Rage, problems with anger turn into, well, I'm just angry about the things that God hates. That's, all the, re- that's the only reason I'm angry. Slander can turn into you know, prayer requests, which have a, be- a bunch of backstory about somebody else. Lust can turn into seeing your spouse as just an object of physical satisfaction instead of a co-heir made in the image of God. We are so good at taking God's word and using it as a Trojan horse to smuggle in our evil desires and think, okay, well, now I can live this way. This is actually for good. But when you strip it away, it's actually about your own crooked heart. And so what should we do? This is what we'll look at more in these next couple weeks. But one thing is it should make us all more serious about fighting the sin in our lives. One of the basic things about Christianity is every single one of us is way worse a sinner than we want to let on. Don't be afraid to let it on. Don't be afraid to admit how deep the sin goes. It should show you how much more we need Christ. We should, as Christians, spend less time pointing out the sins in other people's lives, less time worrying about all the latest news and what's going on in the world, and more time tending to our own gardens, our own hearts, and tracing out the weeds that are growing there. You know, other people's problems is such a great distraction from the sin that grows in your own heart. There's this paradox in the Christian life that that the longer you know Christ, the more you realize how deep the sin in your life goes. 
I guarantee, ask anyone who's been faithfully following Christ for decades, and they won't tell you, oh, I'm so much a better person than I was back then, they'll have a sense, you know what, I realize how much more of a sinner I am than I first realized, and yet how good God's grace is for me day after day. Do you know that about yourself? Is your growth in Christ a growth in seeing how good you are at justifying sin? And how much you need to change, even of maybe the good things that you thought in your life. For me, I think probably for all of us, the older we get, the more grumpy you tend to get, the more critical you tend to get, the less patience you have to get, you have with others. For Christians, that should be flipped, right? Do you, the older you get, find yourself willing to be more gracious with others? Because over the path of your life, you discover more and more how incredibly gracious God has been to you. And you can't help but extend that grace to others. Or do you just kind of assume God's grace and continue to show criticism towards others? Is there a humility growing in your life? Now, but realize also that Paul, as he describes this reality, and you can read this, and it feels so well, why is my life not like this? If I'm raised with Christ, why do I still feel dead to sin or dead in sin? And Paul even recognizes the struggle. It's not news to him, right? On one hand, he says, you've taken off your old self with this practices. And then he says, you put on your new self. These are two definitive statements, but then don't miss the next phrase, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Renewed, that's an ongoing process. That's a lifelong process. That's a process with a lot of ups and downs. And it is one that will take your lifetime. But don't give up in it. Don't discount the power of God over the long haul. You are being remade into Christ's image. What, what these, all these things that are being described here, what is being described with the things that you should take off and then the things that you should put on? It is the picture of what humanity is supposed to look like. And Jesus is giving you your humanity back. He's freeing you from all the ways in which it's been torn down. And he's making you who you were always meant to be. Let that reality sink deep into your life. What is the defining reality of your life? Because what is most real to you will influence and even dictate to some degree the decisions you make day to day. What's the defining reality? That, uh, well, I need this thing in my life if I want to be happy. Or that the problem with all this stuff is really that person. If I can't have this, I don't know how I could be happy or satisfied. I don't know if I'll ever change. I think this sin is too powerful even for God. Is the defining reality not all those things, but the belief, the trust, that even when it feels so far from it, that your life is hidden with Christ in God. And there is actually the power of heaven beating in your heart. One commentator wondered if that phrase back in verse 3, your life is now hidden with Christ in God, is, is maybe some type of allusion to Psalm 27, you know, one of my favorite psalms. Verse 4, this one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. 
I love that phrase, the thing I seek the most. What is the thing that you're seeking the most? And Paul here is saying, though you see it dimly, you are in the house of the Lord right now. You are in the place you most need to be. You have the blessings you most need in your life. You have what you most need, Christ in you. And the problem isn't that you don't have this thing or that thing or that thing. It's that you think those things are more important than the beauty and the power and the life of Christ that is oh so close to you right now. Do you desire Jesus more than anything else? Do you pant for him in the morning? Do you long for him with your whole heart? Do you see that he is more beautiful than that other thing you're really longing for right now? You know, when you're backpacking, freeze-dried meals taste amazing, and actually they've improved them a lot lately. <laughs> but don't be fooled. Even the best freeze-dried meal cannot compare to you know, a good ribeye and fresh roasted asparagus with crispy ends, mashed potatoes with bacon-bound brown butter, served to you fresh. That is good food. Have you tasted the excellencies of Christ? Or are you trying to get through life satisfied with backpacking food, not realizing there is something so much better for you in him? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to give, open up our taste buds, to stop settling for the bland food that we are addicted to. Give us a taste of something that is so much better. Fill our hearts with the delights that are found in Christ. Overwhelm our senses with the beauty of the risen Lord. Transform our eyes to be captivated by his beauty so that nothing would ever compare. Father, you don't ask us to give up the good things in life. What you ask us to do is to turn to the one for whom all those good things are a mere reflection and to come to the source of beauty and life itself and to drink deeply and be satisfied. Lord, you've made us for heaven. You've made us for yourself. So help us to live that way and help us not to be satisfied with anything less. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.